Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Baptist faith and message that will carry us actually into the early part of next year as well. A biblical text that lays the foundation and provides the rationale for such a study is found in the tiny book of Jude at the end of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation. Jude had intended to write a very different letter than the one that he did write. And so in verse 3 and verse 4, the half-brother of our Lord says this, Beloved, While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, he wanted to write a treatise on the doctrine of salvation, I found it necessary uh, to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Why, Jude? For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord and God, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's very important that as those who live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that we know both what we believe and why we believe. In the contemporary evangelical world and even in the contemporary Baptist church, I fear that many folks are good at loving God with their heart, but they're not very good at loving God with their mind. Uh, George Barna, in his research, has made this very provocative statement. He says, most Christians don't live like Jesus because they don't think like Jesus. And I fear that uh, Barna is correct. There are many people who attend church. Some perhaps even have truly experienced grace through a born-again experience, and yet they do not live day in and day out like the Lord Jesus because they don't know the Lord Jesus. They don't know the Word of God. They don't know both what they believe and why they believe. And again, unfortunately, that afflicts many Baptist churches today. It has been the case historically that Baptists were a very distinctive people in terms of their beliefs, in terms of what we call confession. And so what we're going to do tonight is commence on a mini-week study of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, trying to understand what it is that we historically... Uh, rooted in Scripture, and what it is that today we believe as Baptists about certain doctrines that we hold very dear and very precious. If you'll take the material that has been provided for you tonight and open it up, you'll see Creeds, Confessions, and the Scriptures, Preface and Article 1 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. I think you would find it interesting to note that there are actually three versions historically of the Baptist Faith and Message, and interestingly, each one was rooted in controversy that brought them about. In other words, many times Baptists have been forced to confess uh, or forced to reconfess because of a particular controversy that was causing some type of difficulty among 
her churches. So, for example, in 1925, the controversy was the doctrine of evolution, the teaching of evolution, and what is known as the fundamentalist modernist debate. And what you had was a growing uh, in, uh, embracing of evolution. You also had a growing embracing of anti-supernaturalism as well. And so in 1925, Baptists set forth, grounding it, as we will see in a moment in the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, the Baptist faith and message. Then in 1963, there was a revision of the 1925 statement. This time the controversy was over the truthfulness and the authority of the Bible. But as we're going to see in just a moment, it solved nothing. Uh, and one of the things you learn is theologians get good at what I call theological gymnastics. And they're very capable and very adept at bouncing and jumping all over the place and taking a document that was intended to clearly say one thing, and they take the document and twist it and call it to say something it was never intended to say in the first place. And then in the year 2000, there's a sense in which this brought to kind of an apex what is known among Baptists as the conservative resurgence, where we set forth our convictions and revised the 1963 statement in light of the authority of the Bible, a theological movement called open theism, a denial of substitutionary atonement, a denial of the exclusivity of the gospel. Uh, we clarified our understanding of the Lord's Day, and we also spoke very specifically to the issues of abortion, homosexuality, and the role of women, specifically the role of women in the home and the role of women in the church. You say, well, why did you only restrict your uh, statement about women there? Because that's where the Bible restricts the statement. Uh, some people I know would even want to extend that to politics, but the Bible doesn't do that. And so uh, one of the things Baptists have tried to do historically, sometimes more successfully than others, is speak where the Bible speaks and remain silent where the Bible is silent. And the Bible does have a definite word about the role of women, both in the home and also in the church. Well, if you were to get a copy of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and by the way, you can go online to sbc.net. And there, not only can you download a copy of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, you can also download a document that compares the 1925 statement in one column, the 1963 statement in one column, and the 2000 statement in a third column. So sbc.net has both the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 as a single document, and then also it has a comparative analysis of the three confessions as well. Well, the 2000 statement has a lengthy preface that kind of lays out the rationale for the 2000 statement. I did not include all of it, but I did on the, this page of the next highlight some of the more significant things about this particular confession. So follow along as I read it and make a comment or two along the way. Uh, Baptists are people of deep beliefs and cherished doctrines. Throughout our history, we have been a confessional people, not a creedal people, but a confessional people. Adopting statements of faith as a witness to our beliefs and a pledge of our faithfulness to the doctrines revealed in Holy Scripture. Right there you have an affirmation of the fact that the ultimate authority for Baptists is the Bible. Not human experience, 
uh, not a church council, uh, not reasoning, not tradition. No, everything that we believe is judged by the authority of the Bible. Next paragraph. Our confessions of faith then are rooted in historical precedent as the church in every age has been called upon both to define and defend its beliefs. And those are two crucial words there. If I were a note taker, I would mark both of them to define our beliefs. And if necessary, to defend our beliefs. Each generation of Christians then bears the responsibility of guarding the treasury of truth. I love that statement. The treasury of truth that has been entrusted to us, 2 Timothy 1:14. Thus, facing a new century, Southern Baptists must meet the demands and duties of the present hour, hence the 2000 statement. New challenges, third paragraph. New challenges to faith appear in every age. A perversive anti-supernaturalism in culture was answered by the Southern Baptists in 1925 when the Baptist faith and message was first adopted by our convention of churches, of which there are now almost 45,000. In 1963, Southern Baptists responded to assaults upon the authority and truthfulness of the Bible by adopting revisions to the Baptist faith and message. The convention then added a single article on the family in 1998, thus answering cultural confusion with the clear teachings of Scripture. Now, the year 2000, faced with a culture hostile to the notion of truth, this generation of Baptists must claim anew the eternal truths of the Christian faith. And so the committee members who was, by the way, that particular committee was chaired uh, by Dr. Adrian Rogers. Uh, also on the committee was Dr. Al Moeller, who was a very influential guiding theologian as Dr. Rogers led the committee. And so speaking for the committee, Dr. Rogers would have said, your committee respects and celebrates the heritage of the Baptist faith and message, affirms the decision of the convention in 1925 to adopt the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, which was written in the 1800s, revised at certain points and with some additional articles growing out of certain needs. And we also respect the important contributions of the 1925 and 1963 editions. Turn to the next page then. With the 1963 committee, we have been guided by our work by the 1925 statement of the historic Baptist conception of the nature and function of confessions of faith in our religious and denominational life, close quote. It is therefore quoted in full as a part of this report to the convention, and I highlight for you these five statements, which are very important for us as we then think about looking at each of the individual articles, beginning tonight with Article 1 on the Scriptures. Number one. They constitute a, and you need to note the next phrase now, a consensus of opinion of some Baptist body, large or small, for the general instruction and guidance of our own people and others concerning those articles of the Christian faith which are most surely held among us. They are not intended to add anything to the simple conditions of salvation revealed in the New Testament, repentance toward God, and faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Now, let me make this just real personal. This church can, and I believe it does, affirm the Baptist faith and message 2000, but doesn't have to. We could, if we wanted to, as a body of believers, come together and uh, affirm in some, fort, uh, some sort of formal fashion 
1963 statement, the 1925 statement. We could go back to the New Hampshire Statement. We could go back and affirm the Philadelphia Confession of 1742. We could go back and affirm the first or the second London Confessions that were written over in England in the 1600s. Uh, Southeastern Seminary, we proudly confess two guiding documents, both the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and the Abstract of Principles, which was the initial uh, guiding document for Southern Seminary when it was founded in uh, 1859. In addition, we have two other documents that are types of confessions of faith, but that deal very precisely and specifically with doctrines that we in particular want to be crystal clear to the world and to other confessing Christians where we stand. One is called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and the other is called the Danvers, D-A-N-V-E-R-S, because they met in Danvers, Massachusetts when they adopted this statement, the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Now, let me again put it into context. Do you have to confess uh, those four statements to be a student at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary? No, you do not. Do you have to confess those statements to be on the faculty at Southeastern Seminary? Yes, you do. Well, what happens if someone were to deny that confession of faith? They will get a talking to. What if they continue to uh, reject that confession? They will be terminated. Because we expect our faculty, in fact, we use very traditional, and I like it, very traditional historic language that our faculty will teach, quote, in accordance with and not contrary to, without mental reservation or hesitation, our confessions of faith, one of which is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. But because Baptists by their very nature are uh, uh, advocates of religious liberty on the one hand and uh, church autonomy on the other, nobody in the whole wide world can tell White Crossroads Baptist Church what it can believe. And so it is up to us as an individual body of believers to determine whether or not we will even have a confession of faith. You say, well, what if we don't like any of these and we want to write our own? Great. Many churches have done that very thing. And so what you need to understand is that first statement is very important. It constitutes a confession like the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 constitutes a consensus of opinion of some Baptist body. And, yes, indeed, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 was overwhelmingly adopted by our convention of churches in Orlando in the year 2000. And they guide the hiring uh, policy of the six seminaries. It guides the hiring policy of the North American Mission Board. It guides the hiring policy of the International Mission Board. And so if you want to know what our North American missionaries, international missionaries, seminary professors all confess, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is a document that guides the hiring policies of each of those entities of the Southern Baptist Convention. Again, our church can, and I think indeed does affirm it. It doesn't have to. No one can require you as a local autonomous Baptist church to do hardly anything as long as it's not illegal. And so, but at the same time, I would be delighted to know that we do indeed confess the Baptist faith and message 2000. Number two, that we do not regard them, that is a confession of faith, as a complete statement or as complete statements of our faith. 
and they do not have the quality of finality or infallibility. Hence, we changed it in 1963, and we changed it again in the year 2000. Now, a great question that would be asked, I would think, would be, is the 2000 statement in contradiction to either the 63 statement or the 25 statement? And I would argue no. I simply believe it clarifies some particular hot-button issues that needed to be addressed at the turn of the 21st century. But I find them to be completely consistent and compatible with each other, but they're not the Bible. And therefore, a confession has neither the quality of finality or infallibility. In fact, it may be that the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 has got it wrong. After all, it was not written by the Holy Spirit through human instrumentality. It was written by men. And men are always capable of error. As in the past, then, so in the future. Baptists should hold themselves free to revise their statements of faith, as may seem to them wise and expedient at any time. And again, we've done that at least twice in the last uh, 80 years or so. Number three. That any group of Baptists, large or small, have the inherent right to draw up for themselves and publish to the world a confession of their faith whenever they may think it is advisable to do so. So we could do that if we wanted to as a local church. Any local church could do that. Number four, the sole authority for faith and practice among Baptists is the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Thus, confessions are only, and this is underlined in my notes, guides in interpretation, having no authority over the conscience. You say, what has authority over the conscience? The Lordship of Jesus Christ revealed in Holy Scripture. That is the ultimate uh, authority over our conscience. Number five, that they are statements of religious convictions drawn from the Scriptures and are not to be used to hamper freedom of thought or investigation in other realms of life. Uh, the fact of the matter is, one of the things Baptists are known for is our advocacy of religious liberty. I can remember uh, being with uh, one of my boys overseas uh, uh, a couple of years ago, talking to a Muslim, and uh, the, the Muslim said, are you a Christian? I said, uh, yes, I'm a Christian. And uh, I said, what does that mean to you? And he said, um, well, you're a Catholic. I said, no, I'm not a Catholic. I am a Baptist. What is that? And that should not surprise you, by the way, that there are places all over the world they've never heard. Well, many places we know they've never heard of Jesus. Even where they may have heard of Jesus, they might not have heard of a Baptist. And so I said, well, that's a question that could be answered in many ways. And I said, but let me begin here. A Baptist is a person who believes you have the right to believe whatever you want to. Furthermore, I am so committed to your right to believe what you believe, even if I think it's wrong. I would be willing to die for your right to believe what you believe, even though I believe it may be wrong. And he looked at me and he said, you, 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 you really believe that? I said, I really believe that. He said, well, that's not the way the Catholic Church functioned throughout its history. And I said, no, and it's not the way Islam functions either. He said, well, you make a good point. And then I proceeded at that point to say, but here's what really matters about being a Baptist. And I just shared the gospel. 
But what I came to understand was our advocacy of religious liberty is something that is very unique to us in many ways. We suffered greatly for it throughout our history. And so when we talk about there that it is not to hamper freedom of thought or investigation, we mean that our confession should not be binding uh, on any other person who does not wish to join themselves with us. And furthermore, we would honor their right to believe whatever they want to believe because we believe in religious liberty and freedom of conscience. So the last two paragraphs, and we'll move to Article 1. Baptists then cherish and defend religious liberty. They deny the right of any secular or religious authority to impose a confession of faith upon a church or a body of churches. So would we, for example, be happy that Spain has a state church called the Catholic Church? No. We think that's wrong. Do we think it's okay for England to have the Anglican Church that is the state church? No. We think that's wrong. Germany, the Lutheran Church, no, we think that's wrong. We do not believe the state should be entangled in any way with religion, and in particular, religious freedom of thought and practice, all right? We then honor the principle of soul competency and the priesthood of believers. Now, for those of you that studied history, you know that there have been movements within Baptist life to put those two things and basically say they're synonyms. They are not synonyms. So competency means you have the right to go directly to God without a mediator other than Jesus Christ. You as an individual person or soul have the right. You don't need a priest. Uh, you don't need uh, some type of religious guru. You have the capacity as a human being made in God's image to go directly to God through Christ. So competency. But we also believe in the priesthood of believers. And the priesthood of believers primarily is a doctrine, as the next statement says, of accountability. Therefore, we affirm with soul competency, liberty in Christ. But we affirm with the priesthood of believers our accountability to each other under the word of God. In other words, if you look at the Bible, what did priests do? Priests serve each other. And so the doctrine of the priesthood of believers is not a doctrine that says, and you'll hear this sometimes, it's not a doctrine that says, well, you can be a Baptist and believe anything you want to believe. That is not true. That has never been true. You can believe anything you want to believe. But certain beliefs will rule you out of bounds in terms of being a Baptist as historically understood. And you say, well, what are those kind of things? I'm glad you asked. We jump into it right now. Look at the next page. Article number one, the Scriptures. First of all, what you will see from this point forward is the first thing I'll do is I'll have the statement from the Baptist faith and message exactly as it is. I will then give you some of the key text from that statement, and then I'll make some theological observations for you along the way. So, the Scriptures. What does Article 1 of the Baptist Faith and Message say? The Holy Bible is written by men divinely inspired and is, mark that word, is, God's revelation of Himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Now, brothers and sisters, on any fair, honest reading of that statement, that is an affirmation of what we call inerrancy. If something is without error, without any mixture of error, 
It's inerrant. And yet you'll find out in a moment that there were Baptists, uh, especially in our seminaries, that said, well, what that statement really means is the truth is without mixture of error. Well, that's redundant. Of course, truth is without mixture of error. And so they would say, well, the true parts of the Bible are without mixture of error, but other parts of the Bible may have error. That was not the intent of the statement when it was initially written. We know that because the authors themselves said that is not what we meant. Well, we clarified it. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union, the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus, that is the apex and the primary uh, uh, focal point of divine revelation. Now, the Baptist faith and message then contains a large number of scriptures affirming what the Bible says about itself. I just highlighted for you uh, five of them. I'll just note the final four. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus is speaking. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. That's his shorthand way of saying the totality of the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, the smallest Hebrew letter called the Yod, or one tittle, a part of a letter that would distinguish, for example, uh, an F from an upside-down L. That would be the closest analogy I can come with off the top of my head. Not one jot, the smallest letter, or a tittle, a small part of a letter, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 17, sanctify them by your word. Speaking to his father, your word is truth. Second Timothy 3, 15 through 17, perhaps the classic statement in the Bible. And that from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures. He's writing to young Timothy, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, here it is. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I'm going to unpack that in just a moment. And it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1, 19-21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, here's the key, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Why? For prophecy never came by the will of man. Then how did it come, Peter? Men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, based upon our confession in Article 1, grounded in the Scriptures themselves as they witness to themselves, what is it that we can say about our Bible? And I make four big observations for you on the next couple of pages. Let's move very quickly. Number one, the Bible is a divine human book. And I, when I teach theology at the seminary, I'll often ask my students, and I'll tell them, don't jump too quickly. Uh, how much of the Bible, in terms of percentages, is a divine book? And they, if they answer rightly, will say, well, 100%. And I say, that's right. And how much of the Bible is a human book? And if they answer rightly, they will say 100%. In other words, it's not 50% divine and 50% human, but it is fully divine and it is 
fully human. It is 100% the work of God and it is 100% the work of man. My favorite way of saying it is the Bible is the word of God written in the words of men. That's the simplest and most concise way, I believe, to articulate what the Bible is. Well, the BFNM states the Holy Bible is written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. Thus, the Bible is the inspired revelation of God. Now, note, inspiration is a biblical concept. The term occurs once in the Bible, in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Uh, the term scripture comes from the Greek word graphe, which means writing. So the writing is inspired. Uh, the Greek term translated inspired in our English Bibles is the Greek word theonoustos, a compound term comprised of the word God, meaning theos, and the word breath, nuno, nuo, meaning breathe or breath. So the term describes the scriptures as the breathed out by God writings. That's a great way of saying it. What is the Bible? It is the breathed out writings of God. So it's God in its origin. It comes from God in its origin. But the BFNM also affirms the human nature of scripture. First, Second Peter 1.19 should be 19, not 9 there. 1.19 through 21. The Holy Spirit operated on men to direct them toward a particular goal. Peter focuses on three ideas in relationship to the Bible. First, Scripture did not originate in the will of man, the will of a human author. Secondly, the human author spoke for God. Thirdly, the Spirit moved upon the human agents. In other words, the word moved indicates that the power of the mover, the spirit, carried the human agent to a goal. That goal being that using their own personality, their own unique characteristics, the human authors wrote exactly what God designed they would write. Hence, we acknowledge gladly that the Bible is a divine human book. Number two. The Bible is a purposive book. According to the BFNM, the Bible has salvation for its end. Now, stay with me here. Because the Bible purposes to bring humans into a salvation relationship with God, the Bible testifies to Jesus Christ as the agent of salvation. This was not clear in the 1963 statement. There, it said Jesus was, quote, the criterion for interpreting the Bible, close quote. Now, I would argue, if you understood that statement rightly, it was not a problem. But as my good friend Al Mohler points out, it was not understood rightly. It was manipulated to, in some sense, as we're going to see here, set Jesus against the Bible. To set Jesus in opposition to the Bible. You say, in what way? Well, I'll let Dr. Mohler speak for us. We stated clearly, third line from the bottom, we stated clearly that all Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. This replaces the language stating that Jesus Christ is the criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted. Why? Simply put, because 30 years of abuses and attacks upon the integrity of the Bible made clear that some were using this language to deny the truthfulness, and the authority of the Word of God. 
Some who have taught in our seminaries over the past several decades claimed that this allowed them to deny the truthfulness of whatever biblical passages did not rise to their standard of Jesus' intention. Professors and pastors have denied that God ordered the conquest of Cana. He did not test Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He did not inspire the Apostle Paul when he wrote about family or particular gender roles in the church. In other words, I had them when I was at Southwestern Seminary. I worked with them for a time when I was at Southeastern and at Southern. You had men that would say, well, I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, as the New Statement says. But I do believe the Bible contains the Word of God. In other words, there are parts of the Bible that is inspired, and there are other parts of the Bible that is not inspired. Of course, then you have to find someone inspired to find the inspired parts, and that's a real problem. That's very, very problematic, to say the least. Uh, You would have professors, for example, that would say, uh, the God of Jesus is a God of love. He is not the God of wrath that you find in the Old Testament. So they would then set Jesus in terms of his understanding of God against the God who they say is a God of wrath and judgment and vengeance in the Old Testament. Of course, I think if you read all of that Jesus said, even in the Gospels, you will find out that not only does he affirm, as the Old Testament does, that our God is a God of love, but he also makes it very clear that our God is also a God of judgment. In fact, it's a a statement you often hear, but it is absolutely true. No one used the word Gehenna or hell more than Jesus. It only occurs 13 times in the Bible. Twelve times it's on the lips of Jesus. Jesus also believed that the God who is a God of perfect love is also a God of perfect holiness, righteousness, and therefore he is also a God of wrath. That's why that particular statement then was changed from the 63 to the 2000 statement. Number three, the Bible is a truthful book. The BFNM affirms all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. This is equivalent to affirming the Bible's inerrancy and infallibility. Every direct affirmation of the Bible is truthful. Now, you ought to mark the next statement, at least in your mind. The truth of the Bible is not limited to the religious sphere. Now, stay with me. While neither a textbook of science nor history... All biblical affirmations related to science, history, or any other area of reality, these affirmations are true. Two major arguments support the truthfulness of Scripture. One, the nature of God. And two, Jesus' understanding of Scripture. First, God is not a God of error. Second, Jesus treated the Scriptures as trustworthy. Therefore, a follower of Christ should adopt the same attitude toward Scripture as Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus affirmed as true portions of Scripture liberal scholars accept as mythology. For example, Jesus clearly believed in a literal Adam. He clearly believed in a literal Noahic flood. He clearly believed in the destruction of a city called Sodom. He clearly believed there was a man named Jonah who was swallowed by a great fish. I've said it here before. I'll say it again. If you ever reach a point in your life where you deny the complete trustworthiness and truthfulness of the Bible, you're doing two things. Number one, you're saying you're smarter than Jesus, and number two, that Jesus was wrong. 
I just don't think you want to go down that road. And I'll tell you this, if you do, eventually your entire Christian faith will become unraveled and it will fall apart. No, if Jesus, as my atheistic friend Mike Bryant said, if Jesus rose from the dead, there is a God, he is that God, the Bible is true, heaven and hell are real, and he makes all the difference. It all hangs together around Jesus. Number four, the Bible then is an authoritative book. The BFNM affirms it, the Bible, reveals the principles by which God judges us. And therefore, it is and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which humans, by which human conduct, creeds and religious opinions should be tried. Some who claim to be Christians deny the authority and sufficiency of Scripture by elevating other religious authorities above the Bible. So, for example... Liberal Christians elevate human reason to a place of authority and judgment over the Bible. Catholics deny the sufficiency of Scripture by placing ecclesiastical authority over Scripture, such as the Pope and the bishops and their traditions. According to Catholic teachings, the church gave birth to the Scriptures. And it correctly interprets the Word of God. So who interprets the Bible for us? The magisterium of the Roman church. Some Quakers, Pentecostals. Charismatics and even some Baptists exalt subjective experience to a position of supreme authority over the Bible. I was recently talking to someone that had gone through uh, a divorce. Uh, the woman who claimed to be a Christian simply walked away from her husband, and when confronted about it, with uh, uh, as she should have been with leadership in the church, she simply said, "Well, God and I have worked out a new understanding." God and I have worked out a new understanding, as if God changed his mind. Well, again, without any disrespect to that lady, whoever she is, she could not be more in error. She may have come up with a new understanding, but she did not come up to a new understanding with God because God will not turn against nor contradict his word. And so we place nothing in authority over the Bible in terms of our practice of our faith. Thus, for the faithful follower of Jesus, the Word of God is the final arbitrator and authority in all matters. So a closing summary, and we'll pray and be dismissed tonight. Baptists historically described the Bible in strong language that affirmed the inspiration and total trustworthiness of the Bible. James Frost, who was the first president of the Baptist Sunday School Board, now Lifeway, wrote 109 years ago. Quote, we accept the scriptures as an all-sufficient and infallible rule of faith and practice. And we insist upon the absolute inerrancy and total and sole authority of the word of God. We recognize at this point no room for division either of practice or belief or sentiment. I just say this, if you come across some more liberal-minded Baptist, which you may from time to time, who says to you that the idea of biblical inerrancy is a, quote, Johnny-come-lately, close quote, to Baptist life, just simply direct them to your notes and say, no, actually, 
at least 109 years ago, the first president of the Sunday School Board, now called Lifeway, was affirming that we insist upon the absolute inerrancy and sole authority of the Word of God. We recognize at this point no room for division, either of practice or belief or even sentiment of your heart. Let's pray. Father. I think that I am part of a people that take delight in confessing who they are. Not arrogantly, just to simply let the world know this is where we stand, this is what we believe. And I am so grateful, Lord, that we stand upon the bedrock certainty of an infallible and inerrant Bible, grounded in your very character and confessed as true by none other than Jesus, our Lord himself. So, Lord, when we tonight uh, read our Bible before we go to bed or when we read it in the morning when we get up or look at it sometime throughout the day, please remind us that we are reading when we read the Bible, the very word of God delivered to us by men from heaven. And therefore, we need to hear it. We need to heed it and we need to obey it. This we ask and pray in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.